James chapter 3. You ready? We're jumping back in. Hope you had a great Resurrection Sunday weekend. Um, I'm living in the afterglow. I hope you are too. We're in James chapter 3, jumping back into the lifestyle and biblical convictions of a real Christian. Dispersed like seed, Mark used this term, diaspora, the persecution of Jerusalem drove God's people out into the world. The lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, James, the apostle, is the author of this book. It's one of the oldest in, if not the oldest book in the New Testament by virtue of when it was written. It was written to help God's people think right and live right as seeds of grace dispersed like seed because of persecution. So this is a book that is both brotherly, because he keeps saying, and you'll hear it today, brothers, brethren, my brethren, my beloved brethren. This is a family book written to believers, Christian family members, who are enduring difficulty and who need to live like a Christian ought to live, who need to think like a Christian ought to think. This is a practical book, and over 60 times he's going to say, you need to do this, or you need to stop doing this, because real Christians don't do this. And we're going to be in a section that involves what real Christians don't do. Let me begin this morning with a biblical conviction. Real Christianity understands the power of for good and not good of the tongue. Real Christians understand. They have an understanding, an awareness of the power of for good and not good of the tongue. I uh, shared with my staff on Friday a little story that I found uh, some time back, a tombstone in a, at a country church in England, and etched in this aged stone as an epitaph reads these words, which can hardly be seen but are worth repeating. Beneath this stone, a lump of clay, lies Arabella Young, who on the 24th of May began to hold her tongue. <laughs> Arabella Young. On the 24th of May, not her birthday, but her death day, <laughs> began to hold her tongue. To a physician, it's merely a two-ounce slab of mucous membrane, enclosing a complex array of muscles and nerves that allows you to chew, taste, and swallow. You probably used it this morning, if not just a few minutes ago. The tongue. It's a major organ of communication. It enables us to articulate distinct sounds so we can understand each other. It's essential. Without the tongue, no mother could sing to her baby a lullaby to sleep at night. No ambassador could adequately represent our nation. No teacher could stretch the mind of students. No officer 
could lead as fighting men in battle. No attorney could defend the truth in court. And no pastor could comfort troubled souls without the tongue. The tongue. It is complicated and controversial because it is both vital and volatile. It is a little member with big impact. When I was studying this week and reading through this passage, I could not help but recognize I don't focus enough on the weakness of my tongue because of its influence. It needs to be a critical and essential daily focus. Let's read chapter 3. After talking about verses 14 through 26, the works that validate your faith, saving faith is more than words faith. It's not what you say. James argues in verses 15 and 16 of the previous chapter that words aren't enough. It's the work that validates those words that demonstrates saving faith. And saving faith is more than believing the truth faith because even demons believe and tremble. Faith is validated, as it was with Abraham and Rahab, by how it lives out, despite resistance in the culture, despite cost. Saving faith is proven and perfected when it's exercised to support the purposes of God in the culture in which you live being willing, as we will hear today in our church service, to suffer and to risk for the things that matter. That's the story of Rahab, to believe God more than you fear man. Chapter 3 begins with this statement as it relates to words. Words don't mean you're saved, but good words validate that you are saved. Words alone don't validate faith, but faith that's valid is made credible by your words. Matter of fact, let's look at chapter 3. We'll jump in to verse 9. Let's begin with 8, rather. We're going to kind of take this passage apart today, Lord willing, without reading it through in its completeness, we'll jump around. Verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And the subject matter of verse 8 is the tongue, that little member. Look at verse 9, with it, the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. Now watch it. Here it is. My brethren, the pastor at the church of Jerusalem, to brothers in Christ, these things ought not to be this way. Let me tell you about the word ought, must not. It's not like you shouldn't do that. You must not do that. It's ought with an emphasis. It's inconsistent, it's incongruous to bless the Lord as we are this morning and then curse men. Using the tongue to give praise and using your tongue to injure with words. You can't let it, can't be that way. Verse 11. 
does a fountain, series of rhetorical questions, does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Look up for a minute. Yes or no? Does a fountain produce two kinds of water? Yes or no? No, it doesn't. It's an emphatic no, impossible, rhetorical. Of course not. Verse 12, can a fig tree, my brethren, feel it? This is brotherly. Brothers, can a fig tree produce olives? Yes or no? No. Or a vine produce figs? Yes or no? No. Nor can salt water produce fresh. He's asking questions, and then he's going to make a declarative statement. Not possible for salt water to produce fresh water. In like manner, it is inconsistent as a Christian to use this member as a tool for destruction when it's designed for production and praise. It is inconsistent. It is irrational to think that out of my heart, the fountain, can come two kinds of words, cursing words and praising words, blessing words and injuring words. James is saying, brothers, sisters, listen to me. If the trend and pattern of your life is out of your mouth comes fresh and salty water, you are living in a way that ought not to be. And also ought to raise the question, are you what you say you are? Because here's the sobering thing. If this is you, and this is your pattern, you ought not have confidence that my tongue, when it's so contrasting, my tongue reflects my heart, and if my tongue is inconsistent as a pattern, I ought not conclude that I'm a Christian. I wrote someone this week who had communicated to me their frustration over Grace Church and things they had heard. I said, what troubles me with believers who go online and do what they do? With apparent impunity, it's like what you do when you get in your car. You feel insulated. You can express yourself in ways in your car you would never express yourself in person. And you do that online. You say things. I was talking to Parker last night as we were gathered around a campfire roasting hot dogs, which is a cool way to... You're not going to do that today. It's going to be 80 plus. This is not a fire day. He said, Dad, it is so cruel on the internet. The words and the language. And I said, you don't have to tell me. I see it with Christian people to Christian people. Supposed believers. And I wrote to this young woman and I said, what, what bothers me is the apparent neglect of biblical prescription." which denies you the freedom to say these things in any forum, private or public, because you think you're justified because of what you think you know. There is, listen to this, there is one lawgiver 
and there is one judge. And you know who it isn't? You. You don't know what you think you know. You don't know enough. And even if you knew it to be exactly right, you have not been delegated that responsibility. And listen to what James is saying. This member validates me or it invalidates me. Because it must not be that with callous neglect, I say things that I shouldn't say. Because this member and the bulk of this chapter is powerful. It's the littlest member in some ways, but it has the most influence and impact. So he begins the chapter, chapter 3, with an exhortation to teachers, which we touched on. Let not many of you become teachers. Literally stop becoming teachers. Present tense with a big negative over it. They were apparently aspiring to the office of teacher because of the attraction of the prestige of being a teacher. And it was prestigious. I had someone coming up the stairs today said, Hi, Rabbi, my great one. Because that's what Rabbi meant, my great one. It was prestigious. They were blessed and benefited. It's natural for you and for me and my humanity to be attracted to blessing and benefit, prestige and position. And James is saying, apparently, a pattern, stop it. And he's arguing to stop it because in the pursuit of it, you need to recognize ground or reason, verse 1, chapter 3, my brethren knowing that as such we will incur stricter judgment. We talked about that last time. You'll be in a different line. The evaluation will be different because you are a teacher. Greater consequence, greater expectation. Matthew 23, 14, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, why are they hypocrites? You devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. What's the problem with that? You teach one thing and you do another thing. Listen to this. Therefore, you will receive the greater damnation. Stricter judgment. Consequences, high. High cost of inaccuracy, because the reason that you need to be cautious is because you might fail to say what is true. It is consequential to get it wrong. It's consequential to misrepresent God and His Word. Add thou not unto His Word, says the psalmist, lest He reprove thee and you be found a liar. Think of the implications of teaching something that is wrong. We're training a young German shepherd at my house. My wife is consistently helping me see that what I do is wrong. I think it's right. It's what comes natural to me, but the consequences are negative, not positive. Consequential. I think I know. 
It's not like I've never had a dog before. Raised Labradors, raised Shelties. I've had dogs. But I'll tell you what I haven't had is a German Shepherd. <laughs> They're different. I've got the injuries to prove it. <laughs> the point is, there are those of us who want to say, I know, and this is the truth. Now listen, this obviously has to do with the office of a teacher. But I'm going to argue in principle, it's anybody who assumes the position of disseminating and declaring truth. Be careful what you say because the truth matters and misrepresenting as the truth, misrepresenting something that is not true is a bad thing. 1 Timothy 1.7, they want to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they're saying or that which they so confidently assert. Ever been wrong? Me too. Thought you were right? Preached it with confidence. I remember John, Pastor John saying years ago, I know my theology's wrong, I just don't know where. That's humbling. He didn't say that callously. He was acknowledging that nobody knows everything about everything. Be cautious. Because you may fail to say the right thing. And secondly, we're accountable for stricter judgment when we fail to live the things that we say. Higher accountability. Greater responsibility. Stop it. Don't seek to be a teacher. There's greater consequence. And then he amps up the reason for caution. Verse 2. You don't live it sometimes. As a matter of fact, nobody lives it all the time. For we all, James included, stumble in many ways. Now, he's going to talk about the tongue. That is one way you come up short. The word stumble means you trip, you, you slip. It's like the road of life has got potholes in it, and you can't help but fall or trip or stumble because of the potholes of life. We all stumble. No exceptions, no exclusions, not the guy talking or the people listening. Not the new believer, not the old believer. Not the theology professor, not the missionary. We all stumble in many ways. Be cautious of assuming authority as a teacher because inevitably you will fail to apply what you say. We all stumble in many ways. It will happen, one, two, it will happen in a lot of different ways. It is a sobering reality. Now, he's not saying stop talking. He's saying be cautious when you do talk. And be humble in the recognition that even if you're the teacher or the preacher or the parent or the leader, don't let pride become a part of the package of your leadership because you're looking at a sinner who's talking to sinners. Nobody's arrived, nobody's achieved the place of perfection. So a cause for both caution and humility is the recognition of the high probability that I will fumble the ball. I found it interesting, Paul in A.D. 59, recently converted, called himself 
He said, he said, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle in A.D. 59. In A.D. 64, he said, quote, I'm less than the least of all saints. And then before his martyrdom in A.D. 65, at the height of his maturity, he called himself the chief of all sinners. Listen, a good dose of reality will keep you humble. And what James is saying, if you are a teacher and don't seek to become one for the pride and prestige of it, because there's a greater assessment for you, a stricter one, and two, you're going to fumble. Everybody fumbles, which is not to make nothing of fumbling. It is simply to say, you don't have it all together. Let that inform your dissemination of what's true or not true. Be humble. This should keep you from assuming a role with more words and greater consequences. Ecclesiastes 7.20, there is not a just man upon the earth that doeth good and does not sin. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you taught somebody something? And when is the last time you owned the fact that you weren't living what you taught? To me, that's a humbling question. Because if you're a teacher, you're responsible for more. If you're a disseminator of truth, you're responsible for more. And when you fumble the ball that you're responsible for, you need to own it. Part of what undermines the credibility of the faith is teachers who don't take responsibility for what they teach, either it's accuracy or it's lived out reality. And I'm talking to parents, I'm talking to Bible study leaders, I'm talking to anybody who opens the Bible and says, this is what God says. It's a humbling reality that ought to govern what we do and don't do. I read a uh, story of a little girl who was a little Baptist girl who wanted to join her Baptist church. She was meeting with an older Baptist deacon for her membership interview. She was asked this question of him or by him, were you a sinner before this change of which you now speak? To which she said, yes, sir. Well, are you now a sinner? Yes, sir. In what way do you feel like you have changed? She said, well, sir, I actually think I'm a greater sinner than ever. But the change I can hardly explain, but I'll try to this way. I used to be a sinner running after sin, but now... I'm a sinner running away from it. Sinning is a part falling short, missing the mark, stumbling. And listen, look at chapter 2, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, same word, and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Let me just raise the weight of this a little bit farther. Number one, We're going to come up short, stumble, slip. By the way, the idea isn't you intend to, you just do. 
But when you do, it's a big deal. Yeah, I lost my temper. I said that. I shouldn't have said it. I called him what I shouldn't have called him. That's a problem. Not to be lightly considered, but in recognition that this is a problem. Let me say a couple of things pastorally. When you become a Christian, you're declared righteous and you're treated as righteous. The term is justification. We talked about it Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. I'm justified. I'm blameless before God because I bear a record not my own. It's a point in time. It's when you become a Christian. By faith, you're gifted a righteousness not your own. His righteousness. The life he lived is imputed to you. You have it. It's your record. He got your record. He was nailed to a cross. He suffered what you couldn't pay. Colossians 2, the certificate of debt, rightly owed, yours, mine, was nailed to the cross. And it was removed because he paid it all, resurrected, validating that it was accepted, the propitiation. You're declared righteous. But what we're not in real time is living out that righteousness like Christ. We have to progressively, sanctification, become like Christ. As a Christian, you are not sinless. But there ought to be a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, validating you're a Christian. He who begins the good work, Philippians 1.6, will continue to perform it. I am a person who is changing. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened that you'll understand what you haven't understood, the hope of your calling. What is the hope of my calling? The hope of my calling is the hope of a new beginning. Old things pass away, all things become new. You know what else there is in my hope? Presently changing. I'm not what I was, nor in the future should I be what I am. New beginning presently changing, and I love this, the guarantee of a happy ending. When I see him, I will be like him. There ought to be a decreasing frequency of sin in your life, not sinless perfection, but sinless sin reduction. If you understand what I said, would you say amen? amen. So what do I need? Because Romans chapter 3 says... And this is a celebratory statement, Romans chapter 8. I'm going to read it to you because I want to encourage those of you that are wrestling with the reality, man, I stumble. Not only do I stumble, I feel condemned in my stumbling. But Romans chapter 8 has some wonderful news for those of us who recognize that periodically we fall short and we all stumble in many ways. Because Romans chapter 8 reads this way, verse 33. Who will bring a charge, an accusation, a sin charge against God's elect? God is the one who what? Justifies. 
What does that mean? Declares me righteous legally, treats me as if I'm righteous. Who is the one who condemns? Who has the right to do that? That's the flavor of it. Who in the world would seek to condemn the one God justifies? I'm going to make a confession. I'm a sinner, but I've been justified by God. Harry is justified by God. And nobody, no matter who you think you are, can lay a charge or a condemnation against the one who God justifies. Are you tracking with me? Now, it's not meant as an arrogant statement. It's meant as a present tense confidence statement. Because Harry's a stumbler. And I have an accuser, the accuser of the brethren, who can assault the mind and assault the heart. Watch what verse 34 says. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Present, active, indicative. Greek language is called a static present, which means he eternally, every day, all the time, intercedes for me. The issue isn't that I'm not guilty of stumbling, failing, or sinning. The issue is I have a righteousness gifted to me by grace, and the payment for the sin I committed, stumbling in one point makes me guilty of all, has been satisfied by a propitiation that Jesus paid and represents. He ever lives to intercede for me right now. Why? Because I have accusers. He doesn't deserve this. Oh, yeah. Let me tell you, the advocate, 1 John. Let me read 1 John. 1 John sounds like this. Chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things that you may not sin... And if anyone sins, that's present tense, we have right now an advocate with the Father. Who is that? Jesus the lawyer. There's at least one lawyer in heaven. And he's practicing, only one. And he doesn't lose a single case. You know, there's a British lawyer by the name of Sir Lionel Luckhu who has won 245 murder cases. Never lost a murder case. If you're guilty of murder or you're suspected of murder, you want Lionel. Lionel has been knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. I don't know why you get knighted twice. Sir, sir, Lionel. He's the greatest advocate in British history. 245 straight murder acquittals. He's your guy. Never lost a case. You need more than Lionel, and you have a better lawyer who represents a case he cannot lose based on the merits and based on the advocacy. And when you're stumbling, he's advocating. When your mind and the enemy and others are accusing, it's what Romans says, who can separate you from the love of God? There is nothing created in heaven or on earth that can separate me from the love of God. You know why? Because I have an advocate 
who keeps me safe. And he's been raised from the dead, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. Chapter 3, James, verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. That ought to humble you, and these words ought to encourage you that even though there is the expectation of Christ-likeness, there will be a shortcoming, and therefore you need to be safe in the confidence that I have one who intercedes for me. I'm not a loser because I struggle. We all struggle. That's what James says plainly and pointedly. Now, verse 2, part 2. Let's talk about the tongue. Because one of the ways you stumble is with words. Not just with words, but certainly with words. Subject of this passage has to do with the tongue. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, what he says isn't just a word that you just kind of accidentally say. It has the idea by virtue of its etymology, which means its family of words, that your head's involved. You're actually thinking about what you say. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, having thought about it, he is a teleos man, a mature man. Because obviously he can't be a perfect man unless you're Jesus. It's translated perfect, but it has the idea of maturity because he just said we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, having thought about it, he's a teleos man. He's a mature man, watch this, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, a couple of, I think, significant practical applications coming out of this particular statement. And the first is this, as it relates to your tongue, your tongue is an indicator. Because if you can manage your tongue, you can control it, you can discipline it as if it has a bridle. And you saw that term in chapter 1, verse 26, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. So an unbridled tongue means you have an empty claim. And a bridled tongue means you're a mature man, a mature Christian, a mature person. You're achieving the goal of God as you manage your tongue. Verse 8 says you can't tame your tongue. You can't domesticate it. It's restless. It's like my German shepherd. You have to have a leash on him. A horse does what it wants to do. It needs a bridle. The bridled tongue, the man or woman with a tongue that they manage, they control, is a mature man, which means your tongue is an indicator of the kind of person you are as a Christian. A person with a controlled tongue is a mature Christian. A person who's not controlling their tongue, not bridling it, is an immature Christian, if they're a Christian at all. 
The beauty of this statement, in my view, is two things. One, I can use my tongue as a mirror of my soul, my health, my condition. If it's a mature tongue, I'm a mature man. If it's a bridled tongue, I'm a mature man. If it's unbridled, immature. The second thing is the tongue is not just an indicator. According to this passage, by way of metaphor, it's a bridle. It's a governor. Which means though it's a source of weakness, it's a focus that I need to pay attention to because it has the power to govern me, to direct me, which is the point of the rest of the passage. He's able to bridle the whole body as well. You want to start someplace to get a handle on your flesh, start with your mouth. The words that come out of your mouth, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, Paul, Ephesians 4, but only such a word as builds up, strengthens the soul. Start this week saying, you know what? I'm going to bridle my tongue from soul-stealing words, and I'm going to offer soul-strengthening words. Only such a word as builds up, and it gives grace. The word grace has the idea of blessing, unmerited kindness that causes someone, let's put it in an applicational way, it produces a heart smile. Let no unwholesome, rotten speech proceed out of your mouth, not a one, only such a word, only these words that strengthen souls and cause somebody's heart to smile, ministers grace to those who hear. You ready for that challenge? None and only. What does bridle imply? I need to exercise intentional vigilance and discipline in order to manage the unmanageable. I can't tame it. It's restless. It's a restless evil. But I can control it. And if I can control my mouth, what does the verse say? I'm a mature man. You're a mature woman or man. And you're able to bridle the whole body as well. You're not a compartmentalized person. And if you can get a handle on this, you can get a handle on you. Look at verse 3, which validates that. Now, if we put the bits, notice the plural, into the horse's mouth, horses plural, bits plural, different kinds of people, different kinds of horses, different kinds of bits, I shouldn't know this, but I do because I'm married to a horse person. I know that there are mild bits called snaffles. They're, they're just the mildest bit possible. You put that bit in a horse's mouth because that horse is responsive. But there are other bits that are not mild. Curb bits with an S ring or wire bits, so that they bite when the horse chooses to do what they're not want, the, the rider doesn't want them to do. I had a horse by the name of Pepper. We drove to Atlanta from Birmingham to get him. It was a Morgan Stallion. 
actually gelding. He was, uh, when I rode up, I bought him when I saw him. He looked like King Arthur's horse. <laughs> Black. Morgans have these big arched necks. He was tied to a tree. And the, the lady who was selling him was there, and I saw this horse, and I said, this is my horse. I belong on a horse like this. I got on to him to try him. Now, Harry's a rookie cowboy. I have the boots. I have the shirt. I have the hat, but I'm not. I'm a wannabe cowboy. Karen's the cowgirl, but I'm a wannabe ranch hand. I get on to Pepper's back. And I remember it now, but I didn't hear it then. He likes to go. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I climbed on his back, and it's like somebody stomped the accelerator. And I mean, we're going faster and faster and faster. Now, I got scared, candidly. Fear overtook me, and I, I just did a reins back. Thank the Lord he got the bit out of his teeth. Because what they do, they bite it so it can't. Because you know what bits do? They put pressure on your tongue. It's the tongue that the bit affects. And horses bite the bit to avoid influence on the tender part, the tongue. And old Pepper had just started to motor down the, the dirt road. And Harry was able to generate enough force out of fear to get that bit back where it belonged, and Pepper came to a stop, and I got off. And my buddy said, I want to ride that horse. I said, <laughs> I said Chuck, he goes. <laughs> this is a true story. He looked like the Pony Express going down that road. You know how he got Pepper stopped? He didn't. He dove off. He survived, but I bought Pepper. That's a horse. And I was convinced that he could be trained. Well, I looked like a Pony Express person when we got him home. I dove off, and I played college football. I know what it's like to get hit, but I got hurt. Ground's hard. So Pepper got a new bit. Because Pepper needed, as that kind of horse, more accountability. Right, now listen to me. This little member can control everything. This indicates who you are and it governs who you are. And just like a bit in different kinds of horses, read the rest of the verse with me. Verse 3, now if we put bits into the horse's mouth so they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. So here's the big idea for today. I want you to look at this as the key feature that governs your direction and your life, because that's what's about to be said. Bits control horses, rudders control boats. This is like a bit, or this is a tongue piece that needs to be directed just like a rudder needs to be employed on a big boat. And it doesn't matter if the wind's blowing fiercely in life. It doesn't matter how big your boat is or how much 
baggage it's carrying, how much weight and cargo, doesn't matter how stormy the seas are, this has the ability to control outcomes no matter what's going on. All of you, your whole body, all your function, you get a handle on this, you got a handle on you. What kind of bit do you need? Because bit is accountability. What kind of horse are you? You may be like Pepper. You talk. Listen, the average average man, 25,000 words a day. Average woman, 30,000 words a day, with wind gusts up to (laughs) 50,000. See this book? This is how many... Pages of words you're going to write this week. 400-page book every week. You stumble in many ways, but in the multitude of words, Proverbs says, there wanteth not sin. When you use a lot of words, sin is unavoidable, says Proverbs. This is how many words you're going to use this week. You're going to write nearly a hundred books this year. You're accountable for every word. A man is justified by his words, Jesus said, or he's condemned by his words. Words matter. What kind of bit do you need accountability to help you with your words? You may be a high-spirited horse, Man, somebody cuts you off and you're running. Somebody does something you don't like, you're running. Every one of you needs to understand two things. This really matters. It's restless. It says it's a restless evil. It's not preloaded or pre-sprung to edify. And you need to control it. You can't tame it, but you can control it. So the question to ask is, what kind of bit do you need? What kind of horse are you? And then ask yourself, who really has the capacity to help me control my tongue? Are you with me? Restless evil from the heart of hell. Read this passage as you work your way through the week. Let it sit on you because every word matters. And it's powerful beyond your imagination. It will direct the course of your life. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just meditate and press into these realities. And Lord, we do stumble in many ways. And I'm really praying for the person who feels beat up internally, feels like they're a loser as a Christian, or they just can't measure up. And I just pray that they'll realize you measured up, they received a righteousness not their own, and you live to intercede and advocate for them when they fumble, and we all fumble. But this is not to say that we ought not take responsibility for the influence and impact of our words. Our words validate our faith. And we must not have words that injure even as they offer praise to God. 
So God, would you grant us the humility and the objectivity? Help us to enlist allies who can help us see what needs to be changed. Because all hurtful words are not cuss words, but they are hurtful by the tone with which they're offered, by the nature of our behavior when we offer them. So God, grant us the insight to consider what kind of person we are and what kind of bit we need in order to navigate the priorities of heaven. That's my prayer for myself and for us all. Humble us, caution us, and help us. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.